All right, hey, I want to welcome you all to South Lansing Christian Church again. My name is Walter. I'm the teaching and small groups minister here. And it's a good day to be together as God's family. Portions of our family today are in different places around the state. And so Wally, our senior minister, is leading a week of, uh, our weekend of retreat for high schoolers at Michiana Camp this weekend, and so we were missing him this morning. And then Eric, our young adults minister, is off at Great Lakes Christian College with our high school youth group at Statewide uh, Teen Convention. And so they're there. That's why the Oasis is a little bit quieter in the back this morning, not too many students back there. Now, speaking of Great Lakes, uh, I just wanted to bring this up. They're asking for some prayer this weekend. Um, the, this past week, their head soccer coach passed away, and so Frank was asking if our church could be praying along with them. And so I'd like to take a minute right now to pray for Great Lakes and their community. So pray with me. Father God, um, we come to you this morning in a, a time of uh, some sadness and loss for the Great Lakes community and uh, for all the students and the faculty there. Um, God, we pray that they would know the presence and the power of your spirit, that you could, uh, you could work to comfort uh, and to uh, bring people together during this time. God, I pray that students would be drawn closer to you and, uh, instead of further apart. And, uh, and then that, God, because of this situation, that more can come to know you. Um, God, I pray for the families and everyone who will be grieving for the foreseeable future that they can also uh, know the comfort of your presence. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Hey, we are in the middle of a, a series, actually at the very end of a series on Leviticus. And so after today, if those of you who've been tuning out or, you know, not here the last couple weeks, Leviticus is over and so we can come back and be a church together again. Now, our series is called uh, Holiness because we're looking at how God calls us to be holy. Next week, we're flipping over the page and we're going into Numbers, which is a story of failure after failure after failure. And our series next week is called Mistakes Were Made. Yeah, mistakes were made and somebody made them. We'll talk about that next week. It should be a good time. The story of Numbers is also a story of hope, not just a story of mistakes because it shows how God can bring good out of broken situations. Now this week as we read, we want to we talk and we want to think about, we want to ponder this final question this week. What does it look like for me to live a holy life? And I, I would encourage you, as you read with us through the book of Leviticus, the last few chapters, we're reading together using the Bible app, read and ask yourself, what does it look like for me to live a holy life? That's really the question of Leviticus. Today's sermon is entitled, Mixed Up. And uh, speaking of mixed up, I want to share with you about my youth sports career for a few minutes this morning. It was a fairly disastrous sports career. When I was, when I was an elementary school kid, my mom was determined to socialize me, and so she inflicted t-ball upon me, and I played t-ball for, I don't know, too long, and then coach pitch, and then kid pitch, and we lost, I think, of my three years of, of, these, of this sport, I think we lost, I don't know, 99.9% of all of our games. I cannot remember a game that I won. That's how great of an athlete I am. Then in high school, so I took a break, thank goodness, for middle school. But in high school, I went to this tiny little Baptist school. And uh, our school decided that we needed a basketball team to play against all the other Christian schools. The problem for us was that those schools had students who were athletes, and we had a handful of exceptionally non-athletic students, and so we cobbled together this team, and we called ourselves Varsity, and then we played and lost every single game again. 
I don't know if you're sensing a theme in my sports career here. <laughs> to be honest, the thing that stands out to me from my time playing sports is, uh, is really the clothing that you wear. There's something about being in the locker room or getting ready for a game and lacing up your new shoes that your parents bought you that squeak on the floor and uh, putting on that basketball jersey that makes you feel like you're ready to take on the world. Dressed in the right clothes, man, I was ready to get out there and I was going to be amazing at this sport and then, you know, defeat happened every time. But there's a saying, and and you've probably heard it, there's a saying that goes like this, the clothes make the man. Have you heard that one? The clothes make the man. I felt like when I was putting on these, this basketball uniform and these shoes that, that I had been made, I was ready to go out and play sports. I can tell you, I can tell you for a fact that the clothes do not make the athlete. They do not. Now talking about our disastrous, my disastrous sports career is not why we're all here this morning, but it brings up a point, at least to me, and it's, it's this. Sports teams in uniforms, uniforms are necessary for teams to play the sport. And if you don't know what I mean, just think about this. Imagine if both teams wore the same uniform. Imagine if you showed up to Spartan Stadium someday, and not only was our team there, but also Ohio State was there, and they, instead of being garbed in that horrible scarlet and gray atrocity, they had the green and white of Michigan State on, and they had the helmets and the gloves. Everything was exactly the same. It would be a disaster. You couldn't tell which team had scored a touchdown, who tackled whom, what was going on. Distinction is important in football. And it's important in any other sport. You have to be able to tell which team someone is playing for. And I bring this up because in our Christian lives, distinction is also important. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say this. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. God tells his people to be separate, to be distinct. We are to be different than those who are not followers of Jesus. People should look at us and it should be very evident that we are playing for a different team. We're not like most people that we know. We've met Jesus. We're abnormal now. We've been changed. We should stick out. Just like in football, it should be easy to see. But when I think about my own life sometimes and the lives of other Christ followers I know, I'm not sure that that distinction is always as clear as maybe it should be. I'm not sure that people can tell us apart by looking at how we live and the things that we do. And I think that maybe more than looking like followers of Jesus or you know, members of God's kingdom, we just look like every other random person out there. And that's a problem, and it's a problem our text speaks to today. And so turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. That's where we're going to, to spend our time this morning. As we turn there, I want to point out a, a couple important things to note about our Bibles and how they work. So scripture, we, we affirm that all scripture is God-breathed, right? We affirm that it is the inspired word of God. And that pertains to the words on the page that have been translated in the Old Testament from Hebrew and in the New Testament from Greek. But there are things in our Bibles that are a little different. There are tools that are in the text that help us know where we all are. And so when I say turn to Leviticus 19, you can turn there because there are these chapter and verse numbers. These aren't inspired, these are just tools put in the text by scholars 
and, uh, and, and scribes so that we can all be on the same page together. And a really nice tool for you to have in, in your faith journey is, is a copy of the Bible that has none of this because it helps you see how Scripture fits together. I've got a, a copy of, of the Bible in my office called The Books of the Bible, and it's just the text of the Bible, and it, ro- it reads and it flows together so, so well. Now, there are other, there are other tools in the text as well. Your, your Bible might have, uh, it might have a glossary, it might have concordances, cross-references. These are things that we put in the text to help us process it. And then there are chapter and section headings. And chapter and section headings are helpful tools, but I bring, I bring this all up because sometimes we read these chapter and, and, and section headings and we think that these are also the inspired word of God, but they're not. They're just things added afterward that help us maybe understand how the text fits together. And so these chapter and section headings, they'll vary from translation to translation. For instance, Leviticus 19, in the NRSV, it's, it's labeled as ritual and moral holiness. That sounds reasonable. The ESV says, the Lord is holy for this whole chapter, which, true, true statement. I don't know if that's what this chapter is about. And then, you know, the NIV, you've got the NIV, which just says, various laws. Okay, well... That makes it feel like God was just coming up with stuff off the cuff and threw it all together in this section of Scripture. I think there's more intentionality here than that. I, surprisingly enough, am particular to this particular heading in the NLT this time in this instance. It says, Leviticus 19, holiness in personal conduct. I really think that's the theme that runs through this whole chapter Holiness in personal conduct. And so let's dig in Leviticus 19, verse 1, and see what God has to tell us. The Lord also said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now we've talked about this over the last couple weeks, the concept of holiness, how when we hear that word, we think of God or, you know, the Bible, we think of something divine or, or vaguely spiritual. And so we'll, we'll hear God tell his people here in Leviticus and also elsewhere in Scripture to be holy. And we think, well, how can we be holy? That's a defining characteristic of who God is. He's set apart. But as we've talked about it, we've discussed that holiness just means exactly that, to be set apart. And that God calls us to be distinct, separate, you can supply your own synonym here, but that we can actually make conscious choices to be set apart, to be holy. Now a significant way in which that holiness shows up in in our lives is in the way that we interact with one another, and that was true for the Israelites as well, and so these laws in Leviticus 19, let's keep reading verse 3, each of you must show great respect for your mother and your father. You must always observe my Sabbath days of rest. I am the Lord your God. Do not put your trust in idols or make metal images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a peace offering to the Lord, offer it properly so you will be accepted by God. The sacrifice must be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the next day. Whatever is left over until the third day must be completely burned up. If any of the sacrifice is eaten on the third day, it will be contaminated and I will not accept it. Anyone who eats it on the third day will be punished for defiling what is holy to the Lord and will be cut off from the community. 
Now you can see the ways in which God is calling his people to distinctness, to separateness. Idol worship, for example. Idol worship was the default in the ancient Near East. People worshipped carved images, metal objects. But God's people were to be different. They weren't to be like the nations around them. They were to worship God alone and set aside any idols. They were to be holy. And then that holiness would continue on and touch every part of their life from their interactions with one another, showing respect to their, their parents, to their personal acts of worship, how they went about offering their sacrifices. They were to, to look different. The Israelites were playing for another team. And you should have been able to tell at a glance just who they were. They were separate and distinct. Verse 9 continues on, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Now we're in a list here in verse 9 and following that extends all the way through verse 18. And it's all of these very practical instructions that God's people can do to be holy. And you could really sum up this list in something like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or perhaps just a simple sentence, watch out for one another. Watch out for one another. For the Israelites back then and for God's people today, it's not enough to just not do harm to other people. It's, it's expected that we will be actively looking out for one another and seeking each other's well-being. Here in verses 9 and 10, that mandate to watch out for one another, it, it extended to the poor. When crops would be harvested, some would be left along the edges of the field and some would be dropped. And, and so that was to be left there. The owners of those fields weren't to, to send workers out to go collect that leftover grain because the needy needed to be able to eat. And it was the same way in vineyards and in orchards. This food was to be left behind. And you know, for a law like this, we can sit there and think, well, none of us here are farmers. I don't see any of you harvesting fields. And even if you did, the way that we harvest fields is, is completely different today. And so the letter of this law no longer applies, but... I think the spirit of this law still applies. God expects his people to stand up for and to take care of the needs of those who are outcasts, who are left behind, who lack agency and resources of their own. You know, if if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then Jesus calls you to take care of the needy. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of the Lord your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, 
holiness in God's people's personal lives shows up in how we treat others. And ultimately, the best way to describe what that looks like is the word love. From a Christian standpoint, the word love is defined as looking out for others' highest good above our own. That's what Jesus did for you and me, and that's what he calls his followers to do. And so when he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Leviticus here, and he's reminding us to to put others' highest good above our own. And so a way to be different, a way to be holy, a way to be distinct from the people of the world is to actually choose to live out love, to radically look out for the needs of those around us and, and, and put those needs before our own desires. And so that's Leviticus 19 so far, and it, it's all making some sense to me. And then we get to verse 19. I love verse 19. Let's read this together. Leviticus 19, you must obey all my decrees Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two different kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven from two different kinds of thread. What is the deal here? I mean, this verse is so famous that people reference it, even if they don't really know Scripture all that well, as as a way to say, what's going on here? Is God's law nonsensical? Is it irrelevant? I mean, the mixing of, of threads. I'm wearing a shirt this morning that says tri-blend. You're probably wearing a shirt with multiple kinds of threads as well. Does that mean that we're all breaking God's law? Does it mean instead that God's law is no longer relevant for us? What's, what's going on? And then what's with the mating of two different kinds of animals? There are hybrid animals that humans have created mules and, uh, and beefalo for agricultural purposes. And then there's a whole other list of naturally occurring and, and domestically occurring hybrids. Did you know, I learned this recently, did you know that the wolfin is a thing? Yes, the wolfin, it's majestic. The wolfin is a thing, the more you know. And then there's the fields with two different kinds of seeds. What's, what's wrong with two different kinds of seeds? I mean, in modern integrated pest management strategies, sometimes we plant parts of our fields with different crops so that the, the pests will come in and eat the, the less valuable crops before they eat the, the actual valuable crop that we want to save. What's the deal with this? Why can't we do this? Why can't God's people do this? These mixtures, these three prohibitions, along with some more later on in God's law, there's a, a prohibition against uh, having multiple kinds of fruit in a vineyard. There's a prohibition against putting two different kinds of animals together in the same yoke to plow. There are are some dietary restrictions. I mean, what is the point with this stuff? This verse just seems so out of left field. Why did God care about the fabric that his people were wearing, the fruit in their vineyards, the harvest, uh, the types of seed that they would harvest from their fields together? Is there anything morally wrong with these mixtures? And to further that point, Am I breaking God's law by having raspberries and strawberries and apples all in my yard together? Well, here's the short answer. No. No, there's nothing morally or ethically wrong with these mixtures. Wearing a polyblend is not evil this morning. You're okay out there. But also, no, God's not being arbitrary here. No matter how much we think it seems like a very arbitrary law, God is not. He's being intentional. He's not just setting up random hurdles for his people to jump over. Instead, it all comes back to that word holy, separate, 
distinct, holy. The Israelites' lives were to stand in contrast with the lives of any other nation around them. And so they had all of these laws. And many of these laws did pertain to things that were morally wrong. Breaking God's intention for humanity. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit false testimony. These are things that are undeniably evil. But then there were laws that were designed to to help the Israelites recognize just who they were. To set them apart as distinct. These were ceremonial, ceremonial laws. Laws that helped them remember that they were God's people and they served a different God. And so... If parts of the people of Israel's everyday lives would bump up against the boundaries of what God had set for them. You know, if they were out planting their fields and they thought, man, I'd like to have this crop here and this crop here, that would be super convenient. They would be reminded of just who God was. If they thought about the convenience of the, the nations around them who could have orchards and vineyards with different kinds of fruit... And then they were to be a people with only one kind of fruit in their vineyard. They would be reminded that we are distinct people. We are separate. If they looked at the benefit of having multiple threads in their clothing and saw the nations around them experiencing that benefit, but then their everyday life would bump up against that limit, they would remember, oh, God is our God and we are to be his people. And I bet that many times the Israelites were tempted to mix things. I bet they saw the benefit of many of these practices in the nations around them and, and would walk right up to that line and be tempted. And I think, I think that the same can be said for us today. That there are areas in our lives where we are tempted to mix our faith and the attitudes and practices of this world. You know, the rest of Leviticus 19 here, it it has more laws that pertain to the Israelites and their, their faith conduct. And, and there are some things in here which we'll read, and there are more head-scratchers, and there are more laws that remind us this came out of a time and a context very different than our own. But over all this, I think Leviticus helps remind us that to be holy, we have to make conscious choices. To be holy, God's people had to, to choose to live within God's boundaries. And I think Leviticus 19 teaches us, at its very basic, it teaches us that holiness is displayed in how you live. Holiness is displayed in how you live. And so my question for you today is this. Can people tell at a glance which team you're playing for? Does the way that you live clearly disclose that you've, met Jesus, that you know him, that he is the Lord of your life? Or are you mixing up your faith and the practices and attitudes of this world? You know, God's people have been tempted. The Israelites were tempted to mix. We're tempted to mix things. Just kind of off the top of my head, there are a few ideas, a few ways in which we mix things. And this one might put me on thin ice here. Take politics, for example. The election cycle gets longer and longer every season, and it's already saturated with news of various candidates. And, and I think that sometimes we let this stuff consume us. We spend all of our time thinking about this. We let it inflame our emotions. We let it divide us from others. 
And so if you're more fired up to vote against Donald Trump or you're more fired up to vote against Joe Biden than you are to love God and serve your neighbors, then I think there's something wrong. It's hard to tell which team you're playing for. Let's take something a little more benign so we can leave politics aside and not be uncomfortable anymore. Something that seems more benign, the American dream. If your goal is to build your portfolio and your house and to set your kids up for success and to be as comfortable as you possibly can be and acquire the things that you see on TV or on, online and, and get more and more and more, if you're more excited to build all of that than you are to build God's kingdom, then again, it's hard to tell who you're playing for. Your uniform looks more American than it looks Christian. Again, God in Leviticus 19 here and in 1 Peter, he calls his people to be holy, to be set apart. And yet there are so many ways in which our hearts are drawn to the things of this world. If you've bought into this American dream, if you're running your life to, to, to jump up and get more and acquire what you think you deserve, then, man, you're not living that holy life. And others might not be able to tell that you're a follower of Jesus. Now, there's plenty more. There's plenty more that can be said about Leviticus 19. And there are plenty more points in our lives in which we're tempted to mix our faith and the attitudes and practices of this world. And that's not who Christians are supposed to be. Our faith in Jesus is to be the primary determining factor of our entire lives and it's supposed to inform how we live and the things that we think and the attitudes that we have. Holiness is displayed in how you live. Now we're running out of time this morning and so I want to say just one more thing and then we'll move on to what's next in our service. In the Old Testament, the Israelites We're not called to be holy so that they could be better than everyone else and feel smug and be judgmental. No, they were called to be holy with purpose. They were to be this distinct set-apart people so that others would see them and come to have questions and ask about their God and eventually come into that relationship with the God of the entire universe. They were set apart with with purpose. Their holiness had purpose. In the New Testament, it's much the same way. Jesus calls his followers to be holy, to be set apart with purpose. They are to be a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand. This, this light gives light. This lamp gives light so that others can see their way back to God. They're called to be holy with purpose. For you and for me, it's the same. We're not called to be holy so we can be smug We're not called to be holy so we can be judgmental or feel good about ourselves. We're not called to be holy so we can be all about the rules. No, we are called to be holy so that other people can find their way back to God. It's part of God's mission for the entire world. And so as we move into what's next this morning, I'd I'd encourage you to continue to focus on, to continue to reflect on and ponder that question. What do I need to do to be holy. That question that we've been dealing with since the beginning of this sermon. This idea, what is God calling me to do to live a holy life? Because it really comes down to that. Holiness is displayed in how you, how you live. Would you pray with me? Father God, 
we are here together as your people, and it's good to be here. It's good to be in your presence with members of your kingdom this morning. God, I'm thankful for the words of Leviticus, words which sometimes are are difficult to process, even, God, difficult to pay attention to when, when we're reading. And yet, Father, we know that these are your words and that you can use them to instruct us and grow us. So, Father, I pray that you would. I pray that as we as a church continue our reading plan through Leviticus this week, that you would, you would help us to pay attention, that we would look for your heart behind these words, and that we would, we would be challenged in our individual lives to go out and to represent you well. Father, I pray that when others look at us, it would be obvious that we are different. That we're we're members of your kingdom playing for your team. And God, if there are things in our lives that we need to change, I pray that you would would call those to our minds and that you would help us to, to reflect and to ponder and to focus and to be willing to take steps to make that change happen. And God, I pray that you would surround us with other brothers and sisters who can encourage us in our faith journey. And so, Jesus, we are thankful for your sacrifice, and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. At this point in our service, we respond to God. We do that here by singing together and worshiping God. We also do that together by celebrating the Lord's Supper and by having a moment of generosity in a little bit. And I want to encourage you this morning. One of the things that sets the family of God apart is that we gather and we celebrate and we remember what Jesus has done. And so as we sing over the course of the next couple songs, I'd encourage you to come and join us at one of the tables around the room. Remember that Jesus laid down his life for you. And we remember that with that bread that represents his body that was literally sacrificed on a cross for us. And that juice that that represents his blood that was poured out for us. But now Jesus didn't stay in that grave. He didn't stay dead. He was crucified, but then he was in the tomb, and then he arose. And that, that resurrection that Jesus experienced gives us hope that we can one day live for eternity with God in his presence, in the presence of Jesus. And so we look forward to that. And so as you join us at the table this morning, and join with one another in hope, hope for what God has done. And so I, I encourage you to stand with us and worship.